Good evening. Please open your Bibles to the Song of Solomon, which may be listed as the Song of Songs in your Bible, Song of Song or Song of Solomon, and we'll get to that name in a minute. We have finished a three-year journey through 1 Corinthians, which was rich. It's a wonderful study of the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the church, and I thought it would be good for us to go from the New Testament to the old. And as I considered which book to preach, I thought through several options. And after prayer and talking with many of you, I decided to land on the Song of Songs. And this book will have much to teach us. I'm tempted to ask how many of you have heard a sermon from this book at all, much less a whole series. Very few have. And We'll get to why that might be in a minute, but this book has much to teach us about the purity of love, the purity of God's love, the purity of the marriage bed, and the beauty found in the picture that Robert has already described in Ephesians 5, that marriage and the marriage covenant picture a deeper, greater covenant. And it's no wonder that Satan wants to attack marriage so hard. It's such a clear picture of something greater, and he hates it. Our culture hates it. They want to undermine it and distort it and twist it and tear it apart. And so I think this study will will prove rich for us, not only because of how we need to grow, but because of the cultural attacks against marriage right now. But before we get into that, let me start um, by just reading the first four verses of the Song of Songs. And then we'll get into kind of an introduction on how we are to interpret this book. Hear God's word this evening. The song of songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. This is God's word for us this evening. Let me, let me pray. Father, we come to you as needy people, like always. We ask that you would feed us from your word. And we come to this text, admitting that some of us will read the text and will be reminded very sweetly of our earthly spouse, and yet there are some people here who will not. They approach this text with hesitation, perhaps with trembling, because their earthly spouse has not been like their heavenly spouse. Father, we approach this text, even some of us, longing for what is pictured in this text, longing for an earthly spouse. Yet, Lord, we pray that for each of us, we would be able to know more of our heavenly bridegroom and the great love that he has for us. We pray that our desires would be found in him alone and they would be satisfied by him alone. Father, open your word, open our eyes to the truth found herein. In Christ's name, amen. I want to begin tonight by framing the book a little more than normal. Doing a little bit more introduction. You guys are the Sunday night crowd. You can take it. 
It's, uh, and, and it's largely occasioned by the controversy, the confusion that has surrounded this book in the past. You see, on the surface, it's clear what's going on in the text. It's lyrical song. It is love poetry. It's describing the love between a woman, the beloved, and a king. And everyone agrees about that, and that's where the agreement seems to stop these days. In the history of the church in the last 2,000 years, there's not been a consensus on how we are to interpret this book, much less on how we ought to apply it to believers, if we should even do that at all. Some people say that we shouldn't. If I may be a little oversimplistic to make the point, we might say there are two poles, a spectrum with two ends in interpretation. One end might say that this is poetry, it's simply about human earthly marriage and about nothing else. It doesn't represent Israel's relationship to Yahweh, it doesn't represent the church's relationship to Christ, it's simply some poetry describing romantic love within marriage. On the other pole, there's a tradition of interpreting this book simply as speaking about the relationship between Christ and the church. They interpret it spiritually and allegorically with little to no reference at all to physical realities pictured in the poem. It's simply poetry that teaches us about the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the church. And I think that both of these poles are deficient. Let's start with the first one. There are several problems with simply interpreting this book as a collection of romantic poetry describing physical earthly marriage. First, at its worst, this tradition, which is relatively new, by the way, it's only in the last hundred years that people have done this, can simply turn this book into a, a how-to manual for physical intimacy. I remember when I was younger, I saw some of this in a book written by a guy named Mark Driscoll out of Seattle. The, the poetry, the, the form of this book with all of its aesthetic beauty was simply boiled down to be a crass handbook as to what kinds of actions were permissible in the marriage and which ones aren't. And this interpretive method misses the, the whole genre of poetry entirely, and it misses the placement of this book within the whole Bible. Second, second problem with interpreting this book as simply and merely talking about physical marriage is that you take the book and you make it functionally useless to an entire segment of the church. The singles, the widowed, they're, they're not helped. If this book is only about physical marriage, it doesn't relate at all to that entire group of people, and it perhaps could even be unhelpful for a single person to even approach the book because it might be a stumbling block to them. This is, at times, erotic poetry, and it can be unwise for young people to embrace, to read, to saturate their minds with it if that's all this book is. And so, those without a spouse might should avoid it, according to this interpretation, which totally undermines Paul's statement that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Now, related to that point, if this book, number three, is simply a manual for earthly marriage, then it would make this book personally useless to Jesus. Jesus had no earthly marriage, and to make this book exclusively about that would have made it of practically no value to Jesus himself. 
other than to describe the proper view of a reality that he would never personally experience, earthly marriage. Fourth, a fourth problem with the purely earthly view of of this book is, is that it functionally turns the book into law. It functionally turns the book into law. And, that, and by that I mean that this book describes in a real sense the pinnacle of human marital intimacy. It describes the perfect marriage, or the nearly perfect marriage at least. And if you read it as simply an earthly manual on how to do marriage, it paints a picture of perfect love, perfect harmony that no marriage in this life is going to match. None of us measure up to what is being painted in this book. None of us perfectly desires and protects and honors and esteems our spouse. And if this book is simply a statement of what marriage ought to be, each of us stands crushed before its description. None of us can measure up. It's describing a reality that can never be attained in this life, at least not perfectly. And if that's all that it is, a description of what marriage ought to be, then we can be tempted to look over at our spouse, to look around, and be crushed by the standard. And I'm not even talking about people that are in good mar- uh, people that are in bad marriages. The reality is heightened even more when we talk to people that have poor, troubled marriages. They can't look at their spouse and desire them like the beloved here is desiring her king. Because their, their earthly husband is decidedly not like the king. He's acting like the opposite. And so when we tell people in terrible, broken, hard marriages that this tells them how they ought to behave... It could do real harm. A woman married to a wicked man could be left with the impression that she needs to act like the beloved in this text, exposing herself to the potentially more wickedness. There has to be something more than this in the text, and I believe there is. Fifth, a final problem with the, the view that this book pertains only to physical marriage is it, it neglects the placement of the book in the canon. The placement of it within the scope of redemptive history. It's not merely inspired, though it is that. We need to figure out where it goes in the Bible. See, Israel is described in many places in the Old Testament as the Lord's spouse, the Lord's bride. And she's accused multiple times of idolatry. And that idolatry is, is, is pictured in terms of marital unfaithfulness, harlotry. Indeed, the, the book of Hosea, where the prophet is told to go out and marry a harlot, that was an, a picture, that was an earthly marriage explicitly commanded by God to illustrate the spiritual marriage of Israel to God and indeed their unfaithfulness to that marriage. The New Testament picks up that theme that we've already read in Ephesians 5. Paul describes the relationship between Christ and the church in terms of marriage. And God escalates the picture. He ramps up the imagery. He reveals that the people of God are married to a perfect, faithful king and husband. 
And a purely physical reading of this book misses all of that. Now turning to the other end of the spectrum, we might say the purely spiritual view. We read this book, we shouldn't think about any of that physical stuff. We should only think about Jesus and how he loves his church. This view has a lot of pedigree, actually. It's a lot of church history. Really 1,900 years of people closer to this end of the spectrum. This view interprets the book simply as teaching us about Christ. And the major problem with such an interpretive scheme is that it can ironically undermine the goodness of marriage itself. It undermines the goodness of marriage. And let me tell you how. Some people view the romantic and occasionally erotic language in this book as crass and worldly. It's language unbecoming of a Christian. It's unfit for discussion, much less reading out in public in the church. And what lies behind that assumption is a faulty view of physical marriage. We see this in the early church. There was a tendency to view spiritual things as holy and earthly, fleshly things as unholy, as, as wicked, as worldly. And so part of the reason why so many interpreters in the early church viewed sexual activity as simply an accommodation to man's depraved condition. It, it wasn't supposed to be acted upon, and if you had to act upon it, only for the purposes of, of procreation, and even then you better not enjoy it. What does that view do? Well, it, it neglects God's own purposes and design. God made marriage. It was His idea. And physical intimacy within marriage is, is His creation plan. And He declared that good, very good. And so any reading of this book that implicitly or explicitly operates as if Physical intimacy within marriage is shameful or problematic. It ironically turns a book about marital love into something that disdains that exact love. That won't do. Another problem with this purely spiritual view is that it fails to recognize the nature of the book. This book is classified within the genre of wisdom literature. That's why it's placed you know, with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. It's meant to teach us something about how to live in this world, and part of that lesson is how to operate within marriage. If the first view, the purely physical view, places too much emphasis on the earthly lessons, this spiritual-only view places too little emphasis, I think, on the earthly lessons. And so we ought to be pushed a little bit. When we read this book, we ought to be convicted. Compare ourselves. How, how do I compare? How am I acting in these ways? Am I behaving as a faithful spouse if the Lord has given me an earthly marriage? We ought to learn something about the nature of love, the power of union and communion. And so if we simply read this as a as a treatise about Christology or the doctrine of the church, we shortchange the book and we, we reduce the benefit that we can glean from it. Moving on. So how should we then read this book? Well, I think we should read the book for what it is. A song of romantic poetry written by King Solomon describing the relationship between a man and a woman 
while keeping in mind that the book is placed within the history of redemption, and it points us to a deeper spiritual reality about a true king and his love for his bridegroom, the church. And so with this interpretive background in place, I'd like to do a a little bit more framing to help us see how to place this book within the storyline of Scripture. Consider the setting for the book. The book is largely set in two places, both of which are theologically significant. It's set in a garden, and it's set in Zion, or Jerusalem. A garden and Zion. And the garden takes us back to Genesis, where we saw marriage in its purity, the husband and the wife are together sharing communion, and both of them are naked, and they're not ashamed. And there's a bit of that, a flavor of that throughout the book of Song of Songs. But Zion pictures something even further. Zion is where the temple was, where, where man would commune with God again, even after sin was brought into the world. There's a restored communion, a fellowship. Marriage was broken by the fall, but not lost entirely. Communion was shattered, but, it, but not irretrievably. Both of these settings, the garden and Zion, come up again and again as we go through the book. Another thing we should keep in mind as we're thinking about this is the nature of the book itself. The book's often called the Song of Solomon, because it was written by King Solomon, but if you look at the very first verse, you see what the book calls itself, the Song of Songs. The repetition is used in Hebrew as a tool to provide emphasis. Think about other names that repeat, the Holy of Holies, describing the holiest place in the world. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Vanity of Vanities. These are superlative titles, and the Lord of Lords ascribes to God supremacy. He's the king over every other kind of king, and the Lord over every other kind of Lord. He has no equal. Likewise, this is the song of all songs. It's the best. It's the highest. And there are other songs in Scripture, 150 psalms. There's the song Moses wrote coming out of the Exodus. There's a song that is sung well, we'll get to some more songs. But this one is the song of songs. This, this song is describing realities that are taught about elsewhere in Scripture, but it's doing so in a different form, in a poetic form. We can't read this book the same way that we read 1 Corinthians. Paul had attention to detail and logic and order and structure. It's more of a technical manual. This is art. It's meant to be sung even. The song of songs. It's poetry. We are, we're invited in. It's, it uses lyrics and, and verse to, to invite us into the sublime, to, to take us up into realities that can't merely be mentally assented to. We're invited to taste and to touch and to hear, to experience what's going on in the drama. Poetry is the proper form for what Solomon's trying to do in his descriptions of these realities. To illustrate the point about form, let me make a statement. If I said to you, 
that God sovereignly and providentially provides for and protects all of his elect ones against any threats, and therefore we should not feel anxious. You should agree with that as a true statement. We are affirming mentally propositional truth. It could feel sterile, cold truth, clinical. It's technically precise, but it's not effective. It's not aesthetically pleasing. But if I use poetry to make the same point, I could say this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You see, I'm conveying the same truth, but it's a totally different form. Poetry uses images that we already know, and it, it uses them to describe to us profound realities in order to stir our hearts, to stir our affections. And poetry can reach into us. It can teach us things. It can stir us in a way that propositional truth can struggle to do as effectively. That's probably enough introduction. I hesitated to give so much of it, but I think it's important, and it will help us as we move along, and it'll help us read our Bibles better, I think. Let's move into the text. And I want us to notice my first point, which is the desire for communion. The desire for communion. The song of songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Let him kiss me. The beloved is expressing a desire here, a desire for communion, for intimacy. She knows him. She sees him. She finds him desirable. We don't know why yet. She comes out the gate hard. We don't have the full story yet, but we'll soon, we will soon see. We're first made aware of her desire. She seeks kisses. She doesn't want a handshake. She's not looking for a side hug. She wants intimate fellowship. She wants to feel his breath. There's a closeness here, a desire for fellowship. This kind of desire was present and available before the fall in the first garden. Adam and Eve were created in the garden, they were made for one another. Adam was upright. But he was not complete. Something was missing. He needed a helper. And so God put Adam in a situation where Adam's loneliness would be highlighted. God paraded all the animals in front of him for Adam to see that they come in pairs and pairs and pairs. And there's not one for me. So God put him under a deep sleep and took a rib from him and from that rib fashioned Eve. They're from the same substance. Adam from the dust and Eve from Adam. They are knitted together from their very origin. And when God does this, how does Adam respond to his new companion? Does he write a theological treatise? Does he give a commentary on divine action? No, he recites poetry. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And the text says there in Genesis that this 
relationship is why man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They were made for one another. It is fitting and good that they who were separate should be made one. And Moses goes on to say that they were, they were naked. They were not ashamed. Perfect communion. Perfect harmony. What would that be like? What would it be like where there is no shame? Never once would there be any possibility of frustration with your spouse. No shortcomings. No fear of being misunderstood. No fear of being cast off and rejected. Never once worried about what the other one is thinking as they're sitting over there quietly. That's what marriage is meant to be. Perfect fellowship between man and woman, both sharing perfect communion with God in His presence. No strife, no arguments, no bitterness, no coldness, only warmth and desire. That's what the beloved longs for in this text. But we all know the story. Adam and Eve would not remain in their desirous purity. Satan comes in and he tempts. Moses tells us that when the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was a delight for the eyes, and the, tree, the fruit of the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of it and ate. She gave some to her husband, and he ate. She desired something, but she desired the wrong thing. Her desire for the forbidden led her to disregard God's good and clear command, and sin was brought into the world through their sin, through Adam and Eve's sin. And the result was immediate. It was tragic. The impact upon their relationship. God says in His curses, He says to the woman, Your desire will now be contrary to your husband. But he's going to rule over you. Your once good desire to be together, to have fellowship and communion is now perverted and you are now enemies. You're pulling in different directions. And rather than sharing in communion and intimacy, the man and the woman seek to dominate and to rule within the marriage. Strife and contention reign where only sweetness and fellowship were once experienced. The same problem remains for each of us today. We don't desire the right things. We don't desire the good of our spouse. We desire me and myself. I want what I want. We don't desire the good of others around us. We seek to snatch the good for ourselves just like they snatch the fruit from the tree. And we don't experience peace and harmony. Rather, we, we bicker and we quarrel. We don't speak with poet, poet, poetic joy excuse me, about God's good gifts. We rather grumble and complain about what we don't have and what God owes us. And in all of this, it's because we've chosen to ignore God and His Word. Satan has tempted each of us, and we take the bait. We're just like Adam and Eve. We're prone towards 
sin. We're all born with this desire that disrupts communion. Vertical communion with God and horizontal communion with others. The world, the flesh, and the devil want to see our demise and the destruction of communion both with God and within our relationships. Romans 1 teaches us that every single person is born this way. We're born in sin. We exchange the truth of God for a lie and we desire to worship created things rather than the Creator. We reject God's plan to find our desire fulfilled in Him alone and our heart's desire is placed on those things that could never suffice. So what is it that that you desire? What is it that you want most? What keeps you up at night? What worries you? Maybe it's your reputation and you desire the praise of men. You, you crave that other people would think that you're great, that you're worthy of honor, that you should be fond over, you should be liked. Well, if reputation is the greatest desire of your heart, no, it will never satisfy you. Created things, the creation can never ultimately satisfy Maybe it's money that you desire. You want to feel safe because you have plenty of money. Or you want to buy a bunch of stuff, and if you just had more money, you could buy all that stuff. And if that's the greatest desire of your heart, then be warned you're on a fool's errand. The creation can never ultimately satisfy your desire. Solomon, of all people, knew that. Read Ecclesiastes. The desire that we have in the very core of our beings is to be in fellowship with our Creator. True, intimate communion, perfect love without any fear. And that's the desire that is pictured poetically here for us. It's pictured in every healthy marriage. To be fully known, fully loved, fully embraced. And we have a picture of that here, but the reality is far greater than this poetry could ever describe. Perfect communion. Let's keep reading and see my second point. This communion described. The communion described. The end of verse 2 says, For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. The beloved is using the highest of praise to describe the love of the king. And and she's using several senses here. Taste and touch, smell. The love of the king is better than wine. It's more valuable than a refreshing drink. If, If wine can gladden the heart... My king's love can do so much more for my heart. Everybody wants this kind of love. A love that's durable, that's not judgmental. A love that brings a sense of security and safety. A love that brings peace, the absence of hostility and enmity. Poets throughout the ages have written about this kind of love and their desire for it, whether it's Shakespeare and Milton and Dunn, 
or the Beatles, the Beach Boys, dare I say even Freddie Mercury, Taylor Swift, they're scratching at something. And the reason they sell so many records is there's something true in what they're scratching for. That kind of love is, is pictured here. It's ascribed to the king. Your love is better than wine. And let's think about this love. Let's think about genuine, true love. Genuine love first brings a, a sense of security and safety. Genuine love brings a feeling of being safe and secure. We, we see this in all of our lives and all layers of society. Orphans long for this kind of feeling. Widows can grieve the loss of it. Singles crave it. And married spouses ought to protect it. To be loved, truly loved, provides a feeling of safety that lets you take on the world. But also we should note that genuine love seeks the good of the beloved. Genuine love seeks the good of the beloved. Love is an emotion and it is outward focused. It's impossible to be loving towards someone when you are focused on self. True, genuine love has its gaze fixed on the beloved. Its heart is focused on something or someone outside of itself, and it seeks the good of the loved one, the beloved. And that leads to another observation. Genuine love is willing to give. Genuine love is willing to give. It's, it's not selfish. True love is not concerned with using others and grabbing from them. Rather, true love is sacrificial. It's willing to sacrifice, to give, to, to honor others, not clamoring for the honor itself, to cherish others because of the, what they have found lovely in the beloved. And lastly, this selflessness leads genuine love to be willing to suffer. Genuine love is willing to suffer for the sake of the beloved. Men are willing to go into battle to protect the ones that they love. Wives are willing to bend over backwards to bless the husbands whom they love. Parents of every generation sacrifice much of their own comfort and ease for the good of their children. Love, true love, is willing to climb mountains and to plumb depths in order to see the good of their beloved. And I want us to see very clearly tonight that each of these dynamics of love points us to the greatest lover who has ever lived, and that is Jesus Christ. We said that love provides a sense of safety and security. Is there anything more secure than salvation in Jesus Christ? No height, no depth, no ruler. No spiritual being, nothing in the future, nothing in the past, nothing in all of separation can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. We sang earlier, the love of Christ, rich and free, fixed on his own, fixed on his own eternally. 
Not earth, not hell can it remove. Long as he lives, he will his own love. Christ's love is durable, it's resilient, and it should bring with us a feeling of security and safety. His own words say that nothing can snatch us from his hands. The sense of security that we all crave, it will only be found in Jesus Christ. Likewise, we saw that genuine love seeks the good of the beloved. And how clearly is that seen in Christ's own love? He, he came to provide good for his bride, the ultimate good, the eternal good, which is to restore his bride to purity and to communion with her bridegroom. He wasn't selfish when he came seeking to get worldly fame. He was singularly focused on honoring his father and caring for his bride. He's a model for what true love ought to be. He's the perfect example of what seeking good for another ought to look like. Further, we said that genuine love is willing to give, and so I encourage you to reflect on how lavishly Christ gives to his bride. We were enemies in rebellion against God, and Christ came and died for his bride. He gives and He gives and He gives from beginning to end. He gives mercy to we who were merciless. He gives forgiveness to we who would not forgive others. To the thirsty, He gives the water of life. To the hungry of soul that are starving, He gives the bread of life, which is His own body. To those of us who were defiled and dirty through our sin, He gives purity. And holiness. And to we who had earned dishonor for ourselves, He clothes us in glory. You were bought with a price, Christ says to you. And he says, I willingly paid that price. He gives, He gives, He gives, He gives what only He can give, and He gives it liberally, generously, because of His affection for His beloved. Lastly, we said that true love is willing to suffer for the beloved, and herein we see the climax of Christ's glory. He who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or perhaps we leave Paul and we go to John, and it says, greater love has no man than this, that he's willing to lay down his life for his friends. You want to know what true love looks like? Look at Jesus. Don't start by looking at your earthly spouse. Look at Jesus. Look at the cost. Look at how far down He was willing to condescend and how He willingly took up the servant's towel in the wash basin and washed the feet of those whom He loved. And therein, in the face of Christ, you will see what true love looks like. And when you when you're trusting in Him, then your heart can be stirred. By gazing at true love, then we can have love stirred within us. We love because He first loved us, John says. And it's only when we get our relationship with Christ right, the true bridegroom, that we will ever be able to make any progress in our own earthly marriages. Your love is better than wine, indeed. 
But how do we get this kind of love? If this love is indeed so desirable, if Christ's love is so lovely, how do we experience it? Verse 4, we see the means of our communion. She says, draw me after you and let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. The bride here has a plea. It's a prayer, we might even say. Draw me after you. Take me with you. Let's go together. The romantic language is meant to be evocative. And it's fitting. The beloved and the lover delight in their presence and they long for intimacy and communion. And such a prayer is also fitting for the bride of Christ. We, we long for communion with Christ. And such communion is only possible through faith. Trusting in Christ, renouncing our allegiance to all other lovers, all other idols that may draw away our affection from Christ. Do you long to feel loved, protected, cherished? Then trust in Christ. Believe in Him. Hear of His love, how He cherishes His bride, how He washes her, how He makes her clean through His Word, how He adorns her with jewels and precious ointments. He delights in her. Imagine that. In Christ, God delights in you. You're delightful. You're lovely in Christ. He delights in her because she is made lovely through Christ's own love. And this prayer isn't just for the start of the Christian life. Each of us has gone through seasons where we feel distant. We may mentally assent to the truth of being loved by Christ, but we don't feel loved. We feel coldness. We feel sluggish in soul. We feel distant from the one who used to captivate us. And when we feel this way, maybe we should turn to Song of Solomon and pray this prayer. Lord, draw me after you and let us run. Pull me back, my bridegroom. Give me that sweet communion we used to have. Help my soul to cherish you above all else. Grant me again that fellowship. Let me taste again of your love, which is better for me than wine. Let me smell again the smell of the anointing oil of the Holy Spirit. Bring me to you that I may never flee your arms again. That's the cry we should make. One of the comforts that Christ has given to his bride is the promise that he will be with us even unto the end of the age. Even when Christ feels far from us, we have the table of the king, which reminds us that he is not ever far from his bride. Christ sustains his bride through the desert of this age. He feeds us, reminding us of the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. And so as we come to the table tonight, if you are trusting in Christ and cherishing your communion with him, if you're devoted to the apostles' teaching found in the Word of God, to the, the fellowship of the church, the breaking of bread, and to prayers, then we invite you to join us.
at the king's table. But if you do not have Christ as your king, then I urge you to first be united to him. Trust in his word. Join yourself to his bride in the local church, and then you can share in communion with us at the table. I'll pray, and then we'll come up front through the middle and make our way back to the seats along the edge, and then we'll all partake of the elements together. We'll also have someone else walking around if you're not able to make it up to the front. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that through these simple elements at the table, you would stir affection in our hearts for our great bridegroom. Help us to love with a faithful love, to not be distracted, to not have our gaze shifted from him, but to be singularly focused on Christ. May we cherish him as he indeed cherishes us. In Jesus' name, amen.